As the world turns, most of it is probably scratching its collective head at the United States Congress as the latest crisis, Israel's war against terrorists, enters its second week and President Biden pledged support. So what can we expect this week on the Hill? We turn to Bloomberg government congressional reporter Zach Cohen. Zach, good to have you back. Sure thing. And of course, there is the speaker parade beauty contest. I don't know what you call it, but that does have implications for everything else that's going on in Congress. Right. Absent a Speaker of the House since the ouster of Kevin McCarthy earlier this month in a bipartisan vote, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to move legislation through the House or even through committees. The Speaker doesn't just set the floor schedule, but really sets the structure for the rest of the committees and the policy priorities. So absent some sort of agreement by Republicans alone or maybe in some unlikely bipartisan governing coalition with Democrats, it's going to be very difficult to move appropriations bills ahead of the mid-November deadline to fund the government or take up key authorizations like the National Defense Authorization or the the five-year farm bill that needs to be reauthorized soon. That's a little bit of an irony because it was the Republicans in the House that were moving the bills in so-called some semblance of regular order before their blow-up politically. That's right. Republicans were making actually more progress in the House than the Senate was in terms of moving bills, although it is obviously easier to move bills through the House where you only need a simple majority compared to the Senate where there are 12 bipartisan bills, just none of them have actually passed yet. House Republicans had hoped to pass all 12 individual appropriation bills for the current fiscal year, fiscal year 2024, which started a couple of weeks ago. But a couple of those haven't made it past the floor yet. Actually, the majority haven't. And so we're likely looking at another continuing resolution at this point, another stopgap bill, the length of which and the various riders that would be approached to it, it's too early to say. But absent some real turnaround here, be very difficult, not just for the House and the Senate to pass individual bills, but to conference, come together on a final agreement on all 12 of them. Right. And if there is for some crazy reason, no speaker by the end of the CR, then the House couldn't vote on a new CR. The only twist to that is the potential for maybe uh, an empowerment, so to speak, of the current Speaker pro tempore, Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina, chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, in something of a ministerial role. He's very limited in what he can do in this sort of stopgap method between McCarthy and whoever McCarthy's successor will be. But there's talk of of trying to give him a little more ability just to bring bills to the floor. But that would require a majority vote in the House, either uh, among Republicans, a unified or mostly unified Republican conference or some sort of bipartisan agreement on that front, especially given the number of crises in the Middle East and Europe. There is an increased interest in trying to find some way of moving forward on these important matters, even while there is no official Speaker of the House. Right. So in the end, even without a Speaker, and they probably will have one by then, if it comes to a shutdown versus another continuing resolution, there is a mechanism by which the House could avoid a shutdown. There's always a a mechanism. When there's a will, there's a way. The question is, what can the majority of the House get behind? And right now, the majority of the House can't even agree who's leading the House. And so it's going to be very difficult to avoid a shutdown absent a newly elected Speaker. But a newly elected speaker isn't required in order to avoid a shutdown come November 18th. We're speaking with Zach Cohen. He's congressional reporter for Bloomberg government. And getting back to that farm bill, I mean, there's some authorizations that need to happen, right, besides agriculture? Yeah. In the stopgap bill, there was, for instance, an authorization of the Federal Aviation Administration through the end of the year. Another key authorization does need to pass by the end of the year in order to keep up the underpinning of our entire aviation industry. There are two different bills on that front. The House passed its version. The Senate has its own version, but is actually stuck in committee over an issue in regards to pilot training. 
and how much pilots should be able to use uh, virtual or, or non-real training as part of their training hours. That issue has been standing out there for a long time. And so separate from any issues in the House, the Senate has its own issues with that bill. The farm bill, I think, is probably in a similar scenario. I was talking to Agriculture Chair Debbie Stabenow, and she said, I can still keep talking to G.T. Thompson, the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, on a farm bill, a five-year reauthorization of various you know, SNAP, food benefits, conservation programs, farm subsidies. But Stabenow and the ranking Republican on the Senate Agriculture Committee, John Bozeman, still need to work out some really key distinctions in order to get their bill out. And so there are some substantive differences that need to be addressed in both of those bills, even before we deal with the procedural question of how do they get through a chamber that doesn't have a leader. Crazy, <laughs> but it's been going on for some time now, so we're sort of getting into this weird stasis. And what about the military holds on promotions of generals? This goes back to Senator Tuberville. A couple of them slipped through. I was talking to a general last week, though, at the Army show who should have retired back in April, but his successor nominee is waiting in limbo here, so it's not universal, even though a couple have gotten through. Any signs that that could crack or somehow the Senate could find a way around that one? Yeah, Tuberville for months has basically prevented the quick confirmation of hundreds of these senior military promotions. You know, the rank and file of the military still get confirmed, but these senior generals right. uh, haven't been able to get confirmed with a couple of key exceptions, as you noted, uh, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, C.Q. Brown, the former chief of staff of the Air Force. But he was only confirmed as well as uh, a number of really key members of the Joint Chiefs because Senate Majority Chuck Schumer essentially forced a vote on those nominees, uh, a step that he was not interested in really taking because it rewarded essentially Tuberville's decision to hold up these nominees and basically gave into his demands that a vote be held on these nominees as Tuberville continues to protest the Department of Defense's funding for troops who are traveling out of state in order to seek an abortion after the fall of Roe v. Wade. And so it's unclear how the rest of these hundreds of nominees get across the finish line. You might hear something about that in Congress this week, but given the fact that there are judges that the Senate needs to confirm uh, a key EEOC nominee will probably be confirmed on Tuesday. And then uh, another minibus, these appropriation bills that they want to get through. There's just not a lot of floor time to deal with anything closely resembling filling all these military vacancies. And what about the National Defense Authorization Act? That was moving along. There were still some seemingly intractable issues, but now both tractors have stopped. Yeah, both the House and the Senate have passed their individual versions of the National Defense Authorization Act, the annual military policy bill. The key question now is how they work out the differences between them. The House has a version, for instance, that would strip away this DOD ability to help troops who are seeking abortions out of state you know, and cover some of their travel costs. That's not going to fly with the Senate or certainly with the White House, uh, who's fighting with Senator Tommy Tuberville on that exact provision. But there are conferees that have been named and those negotiations can take place to try to hash out an agreement between the House and the Senate on a bicameral, bipartisan basis. But a path forward for actually moving a conference report or any sort of actual agreement remains to be seen. And just quickly, there has been some reporting early on, Bloomberg had too, about some members of Congress were trying to force the issue of federal employees back to the office or resolution of this whole limbo type of question. That seems to be set aside for the time being because of everything else going on. We could see some of this litigated in the context of the spending bills that are being held up. There was a provision in one of the House bills, the one for financial services and general government, that actually would have zeroed out funding for agencies that don't return the federal employees back to the office to pre-pandemic 2019 stature. Now, that seems unlikely to get into a final bill. The Senate's not going to go for that. 
uh, and the White House wouldn't go for that, even though the White House is itself pushing to bring more federal employees back into offices more. But this is something that would need to be negotiated with the unions, something to be negotiated uh, on an agency by agency basis, on a case by case basis. It's a very complicated issue. And there's not really even a ton of data on how many federal employees are working from home or from the office. So it's something that Congress is very interested in trying to push. It's actually simpatico with the White House on this. But the logistics and the specifics on how to get to that and the actual levels of in-office work remains to be seen. Zach Cohen is congressional reporter for Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much for joining us. Anytime. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, 
I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
and it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time 
as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role. So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.